the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Homelessness is a challenge many face in Whatcom County, but there is hope. Since 1923, the Lighthouse Mission Ministries has been providing shelter and services for those who need it most. Lighthouse Mission provides a safe and caring environment for individuals and families experiencing homelessness. The mission offers a warm bed, hot meals, and supportive community to help hurting neighbors back on their feet. But they don't stop there. With the help of generous people in our community, the Lighthouse Mission also offers case management, addiction recovery services, job training, and educational resources to help people achieve long-term success. Everyone deserves a chance to rebuild their life. Your help is needed to make that happen. Your donation will make a huge impact on the lives of men and women in our community. Please visit thelighthousemission.org to learn more about how you can help support our neighbors who are homeless. Your donation will make a huge impact on the lives of men and women in our community. Please visit thelighthousemission.org to learn more about how you can help support our neighbors who are homeless. Together, we can provide a brighter future for those in need. Lighthouse Mission Ministries, where hope begins. Learn more at the Lighthouse Mission the Lummy Bay Market at Exit 260 is where you'll find more in the store. You'll find more in the store because there's so much store, almost 10,000 square feet. The Lummy Bay Market is where you'll find everything you need for on and off the road. You'll find the best value on gas and diesel, along with way more than you would expect out of a convenience store. There's a liquor department featuring a great selection of your favorite competitively priced spirits, wines, and mixers. And of course, you'll want to check out the huge selection of ice-cold beer in their massive beer cave. Want to grab a quick bite for breakfast or lunch? Don't feel like cooking dinner? At the Lummy Bay Market, you'll find a great hot deli counter, including our brand new fried chicken, chicken tenders, and chicken wings with all the fix-ins. Make the Lummy Bay Market your first or last stop of the day for fuel, food, and more. The Lummy Bay Market, just off I-5 at exit 260 on Rural Avenue. Open 24 hours, 7 days a week. Lummy Bay Market, where, where there's, there's more in the store. What is best for farm workers? You know, there's been a lot of discussion, including here on this program, about what is the best thing for farm workers. There's an increasing awareness of these folks that are so important to our food system. The people that harvest a lot of the food that we eat, certainly it depends on what kind of food, right? I mean... There are, you know, machines that harvest our wheat, I suppose, you know, still farm workers driving the, the combine and the, and the truck to haul it to the elevator. And, but there's a lot of the food that we eat, our fruits and vegetables in particular, um, and we know a lot about that here locally as well, that take human hands to harvest and to grow and to prune and all of these things. Big issue has been what what's best for those folks. Welcome back to the farming show. This is Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Best for them in terms of working conditions, in terms of pay. I mean, it's a job, right? Uh, but you want to be able to benefit from the work that you do, especially when the work that you do is so important and feeding the world. And that's been a subjective debate, of course, if we as we've talked a lot about overtime here on the program, an agricultural overtime, something that agricultural work, farm work, was exempt from for many decades in this state. 
and just in the last few years has, because of a court decision and a subsequent change in state law, has gone away. And now, as of the beginning of this year, um, we, we have no um, exemption for farm work. People who work in farming are eligible to receive, required to receive, uh, time and a half pay over 40 hours a week. And the argument is just like everyone else. But what is the actual upshot for the worker? We've talked a lot about that. We've had you know, clips from workers here on the program. I've shared a lot about that on the Save Family Farming YouTube channel. I've interviewed a lot of people. And the rollout has been less than stellar, shall we say. Uh, and it has resulted in people making a lot less money, they say, anecdotally. But what does the data really say? And a new study out uh, down in California where they have also, granted they had a longer rollout, but they've also rolled out agricultural overtime, uh, removed their exemption for overtime. They're in roughly the same spot that we are now. The question is, did that rollout in California help farm workers? And in the first couple of years since that rollout, farm workers have, according to a new study from UC Berkeley, have seen a decrease in their average hours and wages. What does this all mean? Here to unpack all of this is the professor behind the study itself, Ali Hill, with the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics at UC Berkeley, joins us on the Farming Show this morning. Welcome to the program, Ali. And explain first, you know, when we can get into the details and how you started on all this and, and more of the nuanced uh, information that you're digging up here. But first, what's the upshot that you're finding about the impact of agricultural overtime and, and the loss of that exemption down there in California? Hi, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me today. You bet. Uh, so we'll start off short. We're just giving you a little overview of what I found. Uh, so the kind of cliff notes of it are that I'm seeing a reduction in working hours. So, so looking at um, the number of hours each worker is working within a work week. Um, so I'm seeing a reduction in hours pretty much consistent with how the overtime um, standard was phased in in California. So uh, this started in California in 2019 and basically de the lowered the overtime hours threshold by five hours a week every year. So um, in, uh, prior to 2019, California actually already had overtime standards set at 60 hours a week. Right. So starting in 2019, that went down to 55 and then it went down to 50. Uh, now we're at 40. But the data that I'm using for that analysis only goes up to 2020. So just looking at those first two years, I basically see an increase in the proportion of workers who are working below those new thresholds. So below 50 and 55 hours a week. And we're seeing uh, very essentially equivalent reductions in the proportion of workers who are working around 60 hours a week. So there's been a reduction in hours. And then the, the headline from the press release that I looked at said wages as well. Now, when we talk about wages, does that mean a reduction in, it shouldn't be a reduction in their hourly rate, right? But a, a reduction in take-home pay. Right. So I'm actually doing some work now because economic theory would suggest that there might be some adjustment of wages um, to the extent possible. You know, we're bound by paying minimum wages. So right. um, adjustments are going to be relative to that. Mm -hmm. But anyways, the what I'm looking at in that particular paper is uh, 
weekly take-home pay. That's correct. And what I see there is really similar reductions in uh, essentially like the ranges in which uh, worker earnings are, are falling. So we're seeing decreases in the proportion of the workforce who are earning kind of higher amounts and increases in the proportion of the workforce who are, work, er, who are earning kind of like in the middle of the distribution of earnings. Which, honestly, you know, if, if we're dealing in terms of uh, broad brush strokes, it kind of sucks because it's not going, it's not putting more money as a whole in farm workers' pockets, right? Is that what we're seeing here? Right. So that is what I'm seeing. And it's uh, pretty consistent with what you would expect from the perspective of an employer who's kind of bound by the prices that they receive from buyers, which I think is something that we don't really hear enough about. But mm. bu- buyers have no uh, mechanism by which they need to compensate employers who are paying their workers overtime. Uh, so as an employer, the most logical thing is to try to avoid paying that higher overtime rate. And thus it happens. Each person gets fewer hours and maybe more people are brought in. And do you have any, have you seen any data on that where, you know, given operations have more people working? Yeah. So I'm working on that analysis right now, uh, kind of a resounding theme. I've been working uh, with U.S. agricultural workers uh, since I started my PhD in 20, well, I guess a little bit after, we'll say I started in um, 2015, we'll say I started working with agricultural workers. And a resounding theme is that data issues everywhere. So if I compare across like five different data sets, I'll get estimates of the size of the crop workforce that range from 500,000 to yeah. 2 million, right? Yeah, totally. So so it's really hard to actually answer that question accurately. So I'm, I'm working on looking at the total employment effects. Uh, there's also other margins over which employers can adjust though, right? So you can hire more workers. Um, we've also been hearing reports of workers short, uh, too few workers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for many, many years. And so the extent to which they can actually adjust over that margin might be restricted. Uh, it might mean increases in the H2A program. So that's something I'm looking at right now. It might also mean, uh, you know, kind of uh, expediting our transition to a more, um, to a less labor intensive agricultural operation. So mm-hmm. investing more in labor saving technologies it could mean shifting to less labor-intensive crops. It could mean some employers shutting down. Um, so there's, you know, different ways in which employers could be adjusting. And I'm kind of my next steps. Well, I'm first trying to really car or really shed light on the impacts for workers, and then then my next steps would be to look at what are the impacts for the employers. UC Berkeley Assistant Professor in the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics, Allie Hill, is with us right now on The Farming Show here on KGMI. I'm Dylan Honkoop. Glad uh, you're with us this uh, Saturday morning and glad that Allie is here as well, even though the news isn't great for farm workers. Sadly, I, you know, I don't want to do a see I told you so, but this is what was predicted would happen with with agricultural overtime, primarily because of the seasonality of the work. Is is your data showing that? That's something that we've said for a long time with our advocacy here. Um, I mean, you mentioned already that farmers, um, with their unique place in the supply chain, aren't able to pass costs along the way that many other business models are. But also the, the other unique element is the, the, the seasonal nature of 
the work. Is there a way to quantify that or to show that with data, how, how that affects these kinds of decisions? So that's a really interesting question. Uh, it's it, That's a little hard to answer with data because actually yeah. the survey I'm using is the National Agricultural Workers Survey. And one of the huge strengths of this survey is that it interviews workers at their place of employment because uh, it can be kind of hard to get a really accurate depiction of the agricultural workforce if we're doing household surveys right? based on you know where workers are living and all these things. So, uh, But that being said, they're of course going to target... They, they strategically target areas during their seasons where they're going to be employing people. Right. So it's a little hard to capture things about seasonality in those data. But I think to your point, the reason that this is really salient in agriculture is because we have a highly seasonal industry. A lot of these workers have historically wanted to work as much as they can during the harvest season, during the times of peak employment. And then they don't have to work so much during the off season. And so it, it's a very novel setting for that reason. Um, but yeah, it's, a, again, kind of hard to speak to exactly with yeah. data. Well, and that's exactly what we've been hearing anecdotally. That's what I've lived and worked with people who have lived that way for a long time. It's kind of the ebb and flow that really follows a natural cycle in a lot of ways of, of Mother Nature. I mean, if you if you want to get a little crunchy about it, I I am uh, definitely down that path of that. That's what it is, you know. It we see that in times of of busyness and slow um, life and death and what happens with the 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 natural world that we're growing this food in. Um, unlike a factory job that's forty hours a week, you know, Monday through Friday, <laughs> eight to five or whatever it might be, it, it has a whole different flow to it and a different cycle and there are entire cultures built around that as opposed to um, our current urban culture that is much more around that factory-based mindset even though not as many people work in manufacturing anymore or anything like that but it's still a model based around that that vision. Again, this is The Farming Show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI talking with Allie Hill. She's down in California at UC Berkeley. Uh, she's a professor that has been studying agricultural overtime in California. Did, does ag overtime help farm workers? Well, in California, the data that she has is showing not necessarily. Uh, it's not a great picture. Um, what what do you do next? I mean, you're going to continue studying this. Does any of this point toward better solutions? I know that's, you know, as a researcher, that's not for you to decide, but does that even come up um, as, as you work on this? Oh, it certainly comes up, and it's something I'm really striving to try to shed light on. And it, it's, it's challenging, you know? So, I mean, I guess I can say my next steps in research are I'm looking at total employment effects because I think that's something that we miss if we're just looking at the currently employed workforce and how they're impacted. Um, I'm interested in and kind of trying to figure out how best to do a survey of workers that gets an accurate, uh, that can paint an accurate picture of how workers are how workers are perceiving the law, because I think some workers might value that extra free time more than they do the lost income. Right. But that's not the case for all workers, and I think it's important to understand 
you know, what proportion of the workforce feels both ways. And then to go from there to try to figure out solutions, because, you know, really the solution is we want workers who want to work more hours and make more money to be able to do so. And we also want the workers who don't want to do that to not, to not have to do that. Um, so I do think that this can open up conversation to hopefully eventually find some better, uh, some better working conditions for our agricultural workforce that are favorable on all sides. But yeah, right now it's not entirely clear how to go about doing that. You know, so like Oregon and New York State have tried this uh, subsidy program. Uh, I know that you said Washington State is thinking about, and when I was at Colorado State, uh, Colorado passed something with seasonality clauses. Mm -hmm. So those are those are some options that address um, the the single piece of it of if some workers want to work more so they can. But I, I do think like in the long run, we need to figure out how to create a system where workers get agency in, in making that decision for themselves. Now, let's go back to the beginning uh, that we talked about. And overall, and again, your data is finding we're talking with Allie Hill with UC Berkeley studying the effects, the impacts on farm workers of the rollout of overtime that they've had down there. It hasn't gone exactly the same way as it has up here, but the, the impacts are at least what you're talking about from the data that you're gathering resonate um, and track with what has been happening, what we've heard anecdotally here in Washington state, as we've been on our own journey of this happening, you know, does this correlation prove causation? I guess would be a, a question that a skeptical person could ask just because people's hours have begun to show uh, changes that track in time with the rollout of these laws. Does that mean the the laws actually caused that? That is a great question. And to be honest, I'm, as an economist, entirely unconvinced that I can ever say causality happens with, right. you know, 100% confidence. But that said, I worked really hard on this analysis and I've most recently brought in the next two years of data, uh, but I'm not allowed to share those results until they're made publicly available, uh, which is contingent on the government not shutting down. But anyways, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's there are some confounding factors in those first two years of data that I couldn't I don't think I'm fully addressing what um, mostly for the most part COVID. And um, the concern is that in, so I essentially am comparing uh, worker hours and earnings before and after the overtime legislation in California. I'm controlling for a bunch of uh, attributes of workers, the jobs they're working, all these things that might influence hours and earnings. And then I'm also comparing what happened in California with what happened in other states. So I'm using states with similar types of production. I also compare it with um, all other states in the U.S., uh, and in my more recent work, I'm just comparing it with all other states that didn't pass overtime legislation in that period. And, you know, my results have been incredibly robust to everything I throw at it. And so and after adding in the next two years of data, I can just tell you that it's a very similar story. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really don't think that, that there's that would any point toward causation. Yeah, I really don't think that there's anything else that would be causing, and in particular, how I'm seeing the reductions in hours are quite consistent with the, the phase-in of the overtime thresholds. 
it's really unlikely that something else is causing that. Well, and and you know, probably know the reason why I'm asking that question as well is because, you know, Bakersfield, uh, Bakersfield bakersfield.com um, did some research on this or not some research, some coverage of, of this, of this study that you've done and got some reaction from civil rights icon Dolores Huerta, uh, co-founder of the United Farm Workers uh, Labor Union, along with Cesar Chavez, a name that probably a lot more folks know. She said the change in or- earnings may result from global warming's negative impact on lo- local agriculture production. She added that given how strenuous farm labor is, fewer hours spent working, uh, may be its own benefit. So first, you know, from what you're saying, you aren't seeing this being potentially a result from, uh, you know, a change in local agricultural production resulting from climate effects or any, I mean, is there even a way to, to track that for sure? Um, so it would be really unlikely if, if it, uh, if it really comes to it, I can certainly include climate control variables in the analysis. I think probably a better way to explore that claim would be to look at, um, well, do we see changes in total production that can actually explain yeah. these shifts in hours? Um, but I think given the, the re- very robust set of control yeah. variables have included in this analysis, but I think that's quite unlikely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and you've touched on the other thing that she mentioned, which is, you know, farm labor is strenuous, you know, it's hard work and, and working few, fewer hours may be its own benefit. I think you've addressed that in that you're hearing in the course of doing this that some people, Hey, yeah, that's what they're about. Um, they don't necessarily want to put in the huge long hours, uh, and they're cool with that. Um, other people do because they want to maximize their earning potential. Yeah. And I think I'll just add that uh, one of my concerns is that for, for the people that do want those extra hours, one thing I'm hearing is that those workers are now starting to pick up a second job. And I think that that really negates a lot of the benefits to the overtime legislation because now we would be adding extra commuting time for these workers. Uh, you know, shorter work days can be are, have been associated with fewer workplace injuries. But if we have someone actually adding more hours to their work day by picking yeah. up a second job, that could be totally negated. So I think all these things are really important to um it's a you know, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to get data to answer them all. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. hard to do. And, and it really takes, I mean, to get a clearer picture, you need a lot longer time horizon because, you know, you've already touched on the variables can can be all over the map as far as, you know, how much production this year versus next year and good crops and bad crops and good weather and this factor and that fa- factor and how to average over time. It, it takes time to do that. We thank you for your research. We're out of time to uh, chat with you uh, anymore this morning, but um, I'll be interested to continue to follow uh, your your research on this issue. Again, uh, with us this morning has been Allie Hill. She's assistant professor in the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics down in UC Berkeley, studying the impacts of overtime uh, on farm workers and finding that it's reducing overall take-home pay in some cases, as well as a total number of hours worked, which would be no surprise that those two things can correspond. Allie, thank you for being with us here on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan.
Now you can mow, dig, grade, haul, and more with the perfect solution for your property, a Branson tractor. Save your back and your wallet with one of our compact but powerful tractors here at Farmers Equipment Company. Stop by and choose from our full line of Bransons to take on your toughest tasks. With tractors from 19 to 55 horsepower, we have a Branson compact or utility tractor that is perfect for you. Want to use a rotary cutter to tame that tall brush on your property? You can do that. What about snagging a scoop from that pile of gravel to maintain your driveway free of potholes? You can do that too. Branson's six-year warranty along with our factory-trained technicians will make sure your new tractor is always running great. Get the tractor you want and the peace of mind you need at Farmers Equipment Company. To learn more, visit us online at FarmersEquip.com or stop by our locations in Linden or Burlington today. Farmers Equipment Company, serving the Pacific Northwest for over 86 years. Do you find yourself stuck in a timeshare? Get the real facts about the timeshare industry and your options for cancellation. Chuck McDowell, founder of Wesley Financial Group, has put together a free information guide that reveals the secrets the timeshare industry doesn't want you to know, including the five ways to get rid of your timeshare. Call now and get this timeshare cancellation guide absolutely free. Call 800-330-2929. That's 800-330-2929. 800-330-2929. Jackson Hewitt has a plan to get your tax refund fast. With a buck, buck here, buck, buck there. Here, buck, there, buck, everywhere, buck, buck. You don't have to wait weeks for your tax refund. Get money sooner with a no-fee refund advance loan at Jackson Hewitt. On this loan, there's a money-today guarantee. E-I-E-I-D-O. Don't settle for chicken feed. Get fast bucks at Jackson Hewitt today. No-fee refund advance loans by Republic Bank offered to eligible clients. Money-today guarantee if approved for a loan on a prepaid card. Details at jacksonhewitt.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. Bugs. They can be a problem, can they not? Well, a, a little bit more troublesome than your house flies and your spiders and even, you know, aphids and other bugs that we deal with in agriculture. There is a, a threat uh, to agriculture in Washington State from a, a bug, a, a new. Um, not so invited guest uh, in our region is is um, could potentially wreak havoc uh, for farming here in Washington State. Welcome to the Farming Show, Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. Glad you're here on this Saturday morning, bright and early, uh, and we got to talk about bugs today. You know, it's not always our favorite thing to talk about. But people need to be aware of what's going on over on the east side as kind of the epicenter for the concerns about this. What, what's the bug? It's uh, Japanese beetles, invasive Japanese beetles. And I, I, to be honest, I don't know anything about Japanese beetles, uh, but we're going to bring on an expert. She joins us now, Cassie Chihorse with uh, WSDA, with the Washington State Department of Agriculture. She's an outreach specialist there. Cassie, thanks for joining us on the program this morning. So I guess 
just to get started, so people are, are aware, and we can talk about what the bugs are like and what you guys are doing, but what's the big concern right at, at, at this point? What kind of damage uh, could we be facing from this invasive species? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, so Japanese beetle, right, it's a new emerging pest in Washington. Um, we've actually been looking for it in Washington since the 90s, uh, making sure it's not here, um, etc. And a few years ago, we found Japanese beetle in the lower valley. Since then, we've been working on like a multi-year eradication um, to trap for the beetles, treat for them, and remove them. Because as you mentioned, they cause problems. Um, it could affect agriculture. It's going to affect people in their backyards. Okay. So, so for farming, what do they do? Chew on crops? <laughs> right. So the beetle itself specifically, it has different life stages, right? It's an egg and a larva or a grub and then an adult. When it's in that adult stage, we'll see it in the summer and it'll fly around and it likes green leafy material. It'll chew those leaves and it also likes buds of flowers, right? So if you're a farmer, it eats over 300 different types of crops. Specifically in the lower valley, it really likes hops and it likes grape leaves. So that's some of the main things farmed in there. Um, it can get up in tree canopies and it skeletonizes those leaves with really intense feeding. After years, it could reduce those yields um, and cause other problems for farmers. Aside from just them eating it, um, there's also quarantines and pesticide uses that could become problems for farmers and agriculture as well. Yeah. So what what has the, uh, you, you say, again, the lower valley, the Yakima Valley over there in eastern Washington uh, is where they've been finding these Japanese beetles. That's the invasive species we're talking about right now. How much damage have they been causing already? Have growers of, you know, our famous Washington wines and hops and tree fruit and all those other things, have they been reporting um, significant damage from this yet? So when we think about Japanese beetle and its life stage, right, we talked about those adults. The yeah. next thing we need to think about is its grubs or its larva, yeah. what it looks like before it becomes the adult. Now, these favor grass roots, and that's like our lawn, like our ornamental grasses, turf, um, what you have in your front and backyard. And I mean, if you look at your lawn, it's lots of grass. It's just a giant buffet for these beetles, hmm. for their little grubs. So they're going to be really intense in areas where we have parks, where you have your schools, your churches, and all your lawns. So we're going to see most of the beetles in those residential areas. And that's where the, we're going to see the most destruction caused in our lawns. However, then they will hatch into those adults and they're going to eat whatever's nearby. And they're going to spread themselves out, whether we help transport them um, or they're flying themselves. And they're, then they're going to get into those canopies in those agricultural areas and cause the feeding hmm. and the f effects of the farmers. So, yeah, you talk about grass. Well, of course, in Yakima Valley and over here in western Washington, too, we have a lot of dairy farming. Dairy farming relies on corn and grass uh, amongst a few other things for primary you know feed uh, they make milk out of grass and, and corn so is this going to get into agricultural grass fields and destroy crops of size i remember over here in western washington a, a few years ago um my cousin was working as an agronomist at the time and we had him on the program here to talk about it there was kind of an outbreak for a year or two of a whole bunch of army worms so s similar kind of thing a bunch of grubs and mm -hmm. at that time i captured video of them just 
chewing away on blades of grass out in fields, and you could see the these big, big fields of grass for forage just decimated from these little grubs, from the those little caterpillar worms. Yeah. So one thing to note about grubs, especially these grubs, is it's they're hard to tell apart from other grubs. It's just the typical white C-shaped grub with a brown tan had invisible legs. But in terms of grass, if you think um, like ornamental vegetation, it's going to be not our native tall fescue or hay, like hay grasses. It's going to yeah. be stuff in people's yards. So that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, that's uh, good But news. corn... Right. Those corn husks, you know, they could get into it and they could feed on it. But more importantly, it's probably potentially one of their modes of travel and a way they could get transported. So um, in areas where Japanese beetles are feeding and things that they're feeding on, those items, including like your grass clippings, um, those movements could get restricted if you're in an area of Japanese beetle. And that could feel an effect that a farmer or a landowner might feel. So they're not as much of a threat to like field grasses, but they love lawn grasses. They do. And Mm. then if you think about it, if you're in your yard and you have all these yummy grubs in it, you're going to have other critters and rodents come in and pull those grubs up and make a bigger mess, right? Fun, fun. (laughs) And then your lawn, it's just never going to turn green. You're going to (laughs) have yellow patches. We get a nice rain. You're going to have mud. Kids bringing it in, your animals bringing it in. Um, so, well, then from a bigger, and by the way, we're talking with Cassie Cheehorse right now. She's an outreach specialist with the Washington State Department of Agriculture, talking about invasive Japanese beetles that have reared their ugly head over in uh, the eastern, you know, in the lower valley, Yakima Valley in eastern Washington. Um, a problem for agriculture and a problem for residents with lawns, as we're hearing now. Um, it sounds like from a higher level, you know, lawns and residential areas with things that these bugs like can kind of create a reservoir then for this pest that I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, can then, you know, once the grubs who like the lawns mature, then they can get, you know, get moving and the adults can spread out from there. So the farmers nearby aren't going to be so happy that that lawns and and residential areas are harboring this pest that can then go chew on their crops. Yeah, Um, we found them in Yakima, Benton, and Franklin counties, you know, so that's definitely true. And those grubs that are living in those lawns, right, those adults hatch up, they eat leaves and stuff. But also while they're eating, they're mating and they're dropping their eggs. So whatever they're eating on, they're just going to drop below and drop their eggs. Mm. Um, And if you have like a potted plant outside and those beetles drop their eggs in it and you move your potted plant, you know, you can be moving beetles too. So there's lots of ways the beetles can get spread around and find more buffets um, and more agriculture and different things to eat. So now what, what's the risk over here in Western Washington? Is this just going to be an Eastern Washington thing? Or are they going to make their way over there? Have they already maybe snuck over here? Nope. They're currently just in Yakima, Benton, and Franklin counties. Um, when we first started trapping Japanese beetle, we had a population, a little over 23,000 beetles. Since then, we've decreased it down to 19,655 beetles as of last year. 
So to get rid of the beetles, it's going to be a trapping, treating, and quarantine process. By trapping for the beetles, we can see where they are. So we set traps all across Washington state to monitor for the beetles and to see if they're spreading. Now, in those areas where we're catching the beetles, when we set the traps, it's helping catch those adults so they can't lay as many eggs. And then we treat for the beetles to help remove them. And then that quarantine is how we help prevent them from moving. Basically, we take the area that the beetles are in and create a boundary around it. We've set traps so we know where the beetles are. And then everything that's inside that boundary, if it can spread beetles, we work with residents and we work with growers to help mitigate those risks. Um, mitigate those risks, right? So they can move things outside or they can treat things and move things outside, but they're trying to keep those beetles in that area so we have the area to treat. Um, So right now, just the lower valley, but we do keep tabs on the rest of Washington and help work to keep them just in that area. So it could be possible for somebody to get something um, from that area that has eggs or grubs or I suppose adult beetles in it, um, and that could be transported if someone isn't paying attention to the quarantine, and that could end up over here in Western Washington. It's a possibility that could happen. Japanese beetle is also living in the east coast of the United States, right? Um, so people could move from there um, or buy things and potentially transport it over here if they're not following different rules and regulations as well. I think about this in terms of farm products and, you know, a lot of people will buy hay and and different grass uh, crops and other things for feed here in Western Washington Mm -hmm. from Eastern Washington. Is there a risk in in that? I I guess growers in a quarantine area will know that they can't sell those kinds of crops over here. If you remember like our feed hay um, and our grasses like that, they're not going to harbor the beetle. And then if you think about how they are, mechanically bailed and smushed together, yep. no beetle's going to make it through that process. Okay. So good we're know. good to transport hay in and out. It's just like if you live there, you cut your grass, you don't want to move those grass clippings. So, okay. And and again, this is the farming show here on, on KGMI, <laughs> News Talk 790-96.5 FM in Bellingham. I'm Dylan Honkoop, your host this hour, and Cassie Cheehorse is with us right now. She's with WSDA talking about these invasive Japanese beetles, um, you're putting me at least at somewhat at ease that they can't be transported, say, in hay or grass crops and that they don't like farm, you know, field grass, forage grasses. That's that's huge because I figured if they like lawns, they would like um, like big, you know, orchard grass, fescues, other things like that. Triticale, I, I don't know if they like that. Um, I mean, like you do have to be a little things. careful with your mixes, but um, the reality of if someone's haying a field, um, that mechanical bill, the hay is is going to be fine. What if it's a, I, I suppose, a silage bale? And I don't know if people transport silage bales from the east side over here so much as dry hay. I, I couldn't tell you on that, but I would imagine the ensilement, what's the right word, ensiling process uh, would kill any bugs in, say, like a wrapped bale as well. Yeah, think about it along the same kind of coincidence as um, compost, right? If we compost in our backyard, it's not typically like heated up enough 
right? And it yeah. could be soily. That might move Japanese beetle, but like a dairy farm, a composting facility like that, you know, they're going to heat it up and mix things around before they move them. So like dairy manure wouldn't be at risk to move, um, or sorry, dairy compost would not be at risk to move Japanese beetle versus your backyard compost potentially could be. Yeah. Well, and I'm wondering, I, I guess you talk about treating for it, um, and it sounds like probably the best place to treat is residential areas where these things like to hang out and grow up before they spread out into possibly spread out into ag areas. Is that something that homeowners need to be doing? They need to be treating their lawns in those areas so this doesn't become a big problem and start spreading across the state? Yeah, they do. But the cool thing about this is, you know, we have this multi-year eradication, right? Our chance to get rid of them and treatment is part of our steps. Mm -hmm. So we actually go into residential areas and treat people's lawns for free. We send them out a mailer, right? We send them out a mail and ask for their consent consent to enter their property in the spring and we'll actually treat them for free. So it's treatments free to the landowner. We come in and do it for them makes a lot of sense because it benefits everybody. I mean, I could see someone being like, I don't want to sink money into treating my lawn. Maybe I don't care that much about my lawn, but nearby agriculture sure as heck cares uh, if, if these beetles start to explode because people aren't treating for them. Right. So it's a big project. It's a lot of cooperation between landowners and agriculture combined, kind of to reach this like common goal of getting it out of Washington. That way we can operate freely and we don't have to live with this pest, the long-term pesticide use um, and the regulatory effects we could potentially have. Yeah. Um, you guys at Washington State Department of Ag think, you know, are you optimistic that we can get rid of this thing entirely and it would be gone? I would say, yeah, we're optimistic. I mean, our numbers have decreased greatly, and we do have neighboring states who have success stories. So um, in Oregon, they started off with a population of around 20,000. They've been going on to multiple years, and I believe they were sitting at four or six the last I heard. Hmm. And if you turn and look at Idaho, they have a huge success story in Boise. Um, It took them about six years, but they went down to zero. And they have beetles pop up in pockets of Caldwell and Pocatello, and they've also been able to remove and treat. So our neighboring states have done it. Um, We're continuing the process. Our numbers are going down and we'll hopefully just continue that role of working with the landowners and the farmers to, you know, completely remove Japanese beetle. Well, I hope you guys are successful and can contain it and keep it there and it doesn't spread and certainly it doesn't end up over here. Uh, Selfishly, sorry for those folks who have to deal with it over in the in the lower Yakima Valley. Uh, Cassie Chihorse uh, with us right now with the Washington State Department of Agriculture. Um, what else? I mean, do you just deal with bugs or what, what all? <laughs> What all do you yeah, do there so with WSDA? I do outreach some for this state. A lot of it's with the pest program. So I go around and I meet with people, landowners, residents, and different groups and teach them about some of the emerging pests or potentially some of the problems they could have in their backyard. And the greatest tool that I can give them is to let them know how they can help. So, for example, if you are just someone listening in and you ever happen to see Japanese beetle or think you see it, there's one very important thing that you can do. And what do you think that is? Uh, I don't know. Call, email, something like that and say, hey, right. guys. 
But before you do any of that, I always remind people to try to do one thing. Capture the bug. Before you capture it, I want you to take, take a, a picture. picture. All right. Yeah, there yeah. you go. You, you so, shoot it. <laughs> shoot it right? with a camera. Uh, you're on, yep. And everybody has a camera in their your phone on their pocket now. So that, that can happen. Right. If you try to catch it, it might fly off. And um, pictures are the best way that we can have evidence and we can have proof so that we can act and we can do something, follow up with you and work. So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. I'm available um, as a resource to the public, to groups, basically anybody who um, needs needs some help or wants some education. That's kind of what my job is. Okay. So if, if I see one, and I hope I don't over here in Western Washington, but mm -hmm. if somebody sees one or what they think could be one, and you can probably Google this up too if you want to get images of a Japanese beetle so you know what we're talking about. And also remembering that there are three different life stages. I don't know. Are the eggs tiny? Can, can you even see those? I mean, I think it's just easiest to think of grubs and adults. Yeah, and the grubs are yeah. going to have to dig into the soil. Grubs look the same. So I would focus on looking for the adults in the summer. And uh, do they have identifying marks on them? Yeah, so it's about the size of your pinky nail. Mm -hmm. um, it is a green metallic-y beetle with copper wing covers. Okay. And again, you're going to see them in the summer. Um, if you see it, snap it, send it. You can report a couple different ways, but the easiest way is to go online to agr.wa.gov slash beetles and upload your photo. You can also email pestsprogram at agr.wa.gov or call our 800 hotline. And that's just the simplest, easiest thing you can do. Half of our reports um, on invasive species come from the public, right? And a half of our reports come from trapping, whether that's working with animals, plants, and insects. So the public plays a large role in helping protect Washington. That's why we're trying to educate and have everybody work together. Perfect. Well, thank you for all the information and thanks for the work that you guys are doing. Uh, to contain this, um, some people may say, well, you know, is it how big of a deal is it? But <laughs> it's better to nip this in the bud before it, it explodes because, well, it sounds like it's been a real headache for folks back on the East Coast uh, where they have bigger populations of these things. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time and for having me. And I hope we don't see the beetles in other areas. Yeah. Um, but everybody should keep their eyes open. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. Cassie Cheehorse uh, with the Washington State Department of Agriculture. We appreciate your time this morning.